0: We turn to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2, 2 Kings chapter 2. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah sent out. Went with Elisha from Gilgal, and Elijah said unto Elisha, Terry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha, and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. In other words, I don't really want to talk about it. Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha, and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your Peace Now, these sons of the prophets had to do with schools that were established in these various cities, and that they were sons of the prophets means they were being instructed in the old testament word doesn 't mean that they themselves had the gift so much of prophecy, though they are able to tell, foretell this, but that there was at this time some who still instructed young men in what God's word required of his people and they could give instruction the words of Moses and so on and such as they had what the Lord required of them and how they were to serve him so you have these schools of the prophets still surviving if you will in northern Israel for the preservation of the remnant And fifty. And Elijah said unto him, "Terry, I pray thee here, for the Lord hath sent thee to Jordan." This is verse six, and he said, "As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee." And they two went on, and fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they two stood by Jordan. Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together, and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither. So that they too went over on dry ground. It came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou seest me when I am taken from thee, it shall be unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha sought, and this is the heart of the passage, and he cried, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, and he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them into pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that, had fall, that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither. And Elisha went over. When the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. They came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him, and they said to him, Behold, now there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master, lest peradventure the spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, Ye shall not send. When they urged him, till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, and found him not. When they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? Thus far the reading of the passage, and the heart of which, as I stated, are the words of Elisha in verse 12 and then what follows in 13 and 14. I have preached this sermon in a number of congregations this past half year. First time I Preached this this past half year was on New Year's Day, January one, which happened to fall, if you recall, on the Lord's Day. The first year of this year of our Lord, 2023, was a Sunday, and I was stated supply at the congregation of Faith for the evening service. My former, uh, where I was former pastor and congregation, my former congregation. And I preached, as I said, this text. It was not the first time I preached this text for faith congregation. I had preached this text for the faith congregation some 30 years previous. At the death of a mother of the congregation, the Sunday following her death, a mother of seven children, ages three through 17. And on that Sunday following her funeral and her burial, she died of a surgical complication with a blood clot that lodged in the lungs and in the artery and prevented the blood from going, of course, to her brain. And she passed into glory that Lord's Day previous As we as congregation of faith in our bewilderment and perplexity dealt with that grief and that overwhelming loss, I turned to this passage and the title of the sermon at that time, Where is Now the Lord God of Elijah? The mercies of the Lord, as I said, are often well disguised. If this be a mercy, Lord, spare us thy judgments and thy wrath. The occasion for preaching it at my, that congregation of faith this past New Year's Day was the death of her husband, Jim an overlap just a couple months previous to my preaching there, and when he died, along with my own brother who died just a month previous to that, this text came to mind. And I have now preached this text and sermon, which was somewhat different than what I preached some 30 years ago, which was then more personal and so on. But I've preached this not simply because we have to deal with death, though we all do, but because there are other losses that we experience as well. In the present controversy our churches have gone through, there are families who have experienced losses in, this, in the way of family members leaving the denomination and the, and the churches and with anger and with a wrath and words and those who were once close and friends and family are divided and when the holidays come, there's an empty seat or two or chair because of the division and yet it is of the Lord and we have to deal even with those kinds of losses or the news that your loved one has cancer and it looks as though that cancer may well be terminal and then to have to deal with that and i turn to that this passage with those things in mind those shall i call them those severe mercies of the lord and we turn to this passage not simply to ask the question where is now the lord god of elijah not simply to ask the question but because in the passage there is also given the answer and i want to look at this passage as the question is raised and what gives rise to the question but as well then the answer that's found in the passage. And not only why it is that we need the Lord God in all of these trying and testing times, but why we can rely on him as Jehovah God, the Jehovah God who is labeled in this passage as the Lord God of Elijah. Why labeled in that fashion? And what does that teach us concerning the Lord God and his Ways, his trying, testing ways. That's what we want to consider and understand. So, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And of course, Lord in capital letters there because that's how the King James refers to Jehovah. And Jehovah is the God of promise. I change not with respect to my promises and my words, my word and promises. The occasion for the cry, the God to whom we cry, as he's labeled as the Lord God of Elijah, and Jehovah's marvelous answer, as that's found in the text as well. The question posed by Elisha. At the brook, at the brink I should say, of the river Jordan, as he prepares to pass over, where is the Lord God of Elijah is a cry from the heart. It is a bold cry. It's a cry in which she all but challenges Jehovah God to demonstrate that he indeed is Jehovah God. Which is to say, if thou art Jehovah God, the God of Elijah who keeps his word, because that's the meaning of Jehovah, is it not, Lord God? Thou art a God of promise who keeps his word and changes not. Then, Lord God, demonstrate thyself as such according to thy claim, and prove thou art a God of faithfulness and of promise. Because, of course, that's what Jehovah God declares in his word, and in the boldness of Elijah, Elisha, he will hold Jehovah God to his word, somewhat, you know, like Jacob when he grabbed hold of the knees of the angel, and the angel said, let me go. And he, Jacob said, oh no, I'm not letting you go. I'm not going. Let you go, angel of the Lord, until thou doth bless me. And by that prevailing, if you will, and those words, Jacob prevailed upon the angel, and by these words, Elisha, you see, would prevail upon the Lord God, reminding Jehovah of his own word and holding him, you see, to his own world. Show, O Lord God, thou art the God of power, but not simply the God of power, but show that thou art a God of power that has a power governed by a mercy, thy covenantal mercy and thy covenantal promises. In other words, show thyself to be the saving God thou hast claimed and declared thyself to be, and not a Lord God who hath lost patience with us and will cast us off and forget us and leave us to our own devices, because if that's what you do, Lord, then we are going to perish and be in complete despair. So this bold cry of Elisha, in which he is going to hold Jehovah God to his own name and to his own word and to his own promises. The occasion for it, of course, is that astonishing departure of Elijah from the physical and the earthly realm. And he did not depart, of course, in any ordinary way. He departed in an astonishing way in that he went alive bodily from this realm the earthly and the physical into the heavenly and the spiritual and he did that as he was carried away by what we may know as a tornado it's called a whirlwind here but it's a tornado a funnel comes down from the heavens and in that tornado there can be seen not only the lightning flashes but a chariot that glows as with fire and horses that are hitched to that chariot and they are driving that that chariot and it's and into this tornado that Elijah steps, as it were, and this tornado with the chariot that glows with the fire and the horses that are yoked to that chariot carry it into the, into the upwards, if you will, and as Elisha lays there on the ground with his mouth open, it vanishes, goes into the sky, and Elisha, Elijah himself vanishes from The earth and in vanishing from the earth, he of course enters into the heavenly and the spiritual realm. It's a cry that is occasioned by Elijah's ascension because that's exactly what it was. Elijah ascends bodily from the earthly and the physical realm into the heavenly and the spiritual. That Elijah indeed was taken bodily alive into glory is of course underscored by. ...a number of considerations, two in particular, first from the context itself. There are these sons of the prophets who have been given to understand that Elijah was leaving Elisha behind that day... ...was going to be taken from Elisha and from them as a prophet, and they remain on the other side of Jordan... ...but to view Elisha and Elijah as they have crossed Jordan in that wonderful way... ...and then walk off into the wilderness on the other side of Jordan and they disappear from view, and the sons of the prophets continue to to watch for a time, and they see this funnel come down along the very path that Elijah and Elisha have been following, and they wonder what has transpired as that great funnel cloud come and slain both of them, so that both Elijah and Elisha have perished in that tornado with its Power and with its wind. They wait for a time, and who knows how long, maybe half an hour, maybe an hour later, they see a figure (laughs) returning to them from that wilderness, not two figures, but just one, and as Elisha draws near, they realize Elijah is gone, and it's Elisha who is returning back alive, and once he crosses the river, of course, he informs them that Elijah has been taken into Glory, And they are skeptical. He tells them this. And they meet him. They bow themselves. And they said, behold, there are with thy servants 50 strong men. How do you know he has been taken from the earthly into the spiritual and disappeared? Perhaps it's quite different. Perhaps he's been carried up by the wind of the Lord. The spirit there has to do with the wind of the Lord. And he's been cast upon some mountain, deposited, falling from that tornadoic wind and lies broken with his body on some mountainside or in some valley, we should go see. And he says, don't waste your time. I saw him disappear into glory. They prevail upon him, and finally, he says, to satisfy yourself, go ahead. And they seek him. Notice, beloved, not just one or two men go seek him, 50 men go seek him. That's quite uh, a rescue party, you know. And it's not just they spend a day looking in the vicinity. They spend three days looking over the whole of the vicinity, scouring it. And after three days, 50 men scouring that whole vicinity, they satisfy themselves. He hasn't been deposited back on earth. It must be just as Elisha says. He has been taken up and he has entered bodily into glory. And as verse 8 comes to an end, Elisha says to them, Didn't I say unto you, Go not? you spent your time, all you have done is verify the truthfulness of what I have said. But not only is that bodily ascension of Elijah verified by this context, as you well know, it is also verified in the New Testament account, as our children are aware of, in what is known as the event of the Mount of Transfiguration, when three disciples went with Jesus to the top of a certain hill, that he might step aside a time to pray as the cross is only a month or two in the future and to prepare himself for that cross and the Lord God sins from heaven to men. One of whom, of course, was Moses, who also was taken bodily into glory. Only his body went as a dead body. You can read of that in Jude. He sees the promised land. He could not enter because of his sin. That was the consequence. He dies. He's put into a cave. And there we read in Jude 1, chapter, verse 7, that there was a disputation over the body. And Michael says, the Lord rebuke thee to Satan. I have the right by the word of God to take him into glory. And Moses' body was taken, was taken into, in, went bodily into heaven as a corpse. And they're raised evidently in the courts of heaven before the, the saints anticipating the resurrection itself. And Moses then appears here, representing the law of God on the Mount of Transfiguration, along with, as you recall, Elijah. The disciples recognized them as Moses and Elijah. Elijah had gone bodily into heaven, and he is one of the two that reappears on the Mount of Transfiguration to encourage Christ to face that cross. And the horror of the cross to make payment, not only for the sinner saints on earth, but to maintain the right of the saints already in glory by serving their penalty and the sentence of their death. So that's the occasion, this bodily ascension of Elijah into glory in such a way that it even is more glorious from an outward point of view and spectacular than the ascension of Christ himself. Christ of course ascended before the eyes of his disciples if you recall and he simply defies gravity and floats upward for who knows how many hundreds and thousands of feet and there's clouds and suddenly he just disappears into the clouds and he vanishes from this earthly physical realm and enters into the spiritual and to the heavenly realms and what he's called is his ascension. But Elijah goes with a roar that tornado which comes with the sound of a of a freight train, they they say, and the wind is, is blowing and the dust is raised, and there are the chariots that glow as with a fire, and the horses that are, are yoked to that chariot, and he's carried away in this spectacular fashion and disappears. A few things in Scripture can compare to the glory and the spectacular fashion in which Elijah departed from this earth. But now, as you consider how Elijah was taken to glory in this spectacular fashion and goes from earth to heaven alive bodily and that Elisha witnesses this, that his one whom he calls his master and his friend from whom he learned so much and with whom he had this close bond of, of love and affection, my father, my father, he says, One might think that as he considers Elijah who has entered into glory bodily, that the great hallelujah chorus would go up and he would be filled with a happiness and with a joy and a gratitude. After all, he has entered into heaven and there is the joy and the glory and the fellowship of of the saints. And no more trials and no more tests and crying and weeping is carried away, and there is no more sin. Isn't that, beloved, something to be desired, to be sought? You might think that Elisha would have then said, oh, happy day. My friend, my father, as it were, my spiritual father, and my master has been taken to glory, and now he can enjoy the joys of Glory and be freed from the threat of Ahab and Jezebel and all the rest, and no more trials and no more tests. How thankful I am, how happy I am, he has left us. Is that the passage? That's not the passage. That's not his reaction, is it? There's the cry, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. There is the question that is at the heart of our text, where is now the Lord God of Elisha? But when Elijah was taken, Elijah. But when the Elijah was taken from him, we read that he takes hold of his mantle and he rends it in half and cries out, "My father, my father, the horsemen of Israel, and my father, my father, the horsemen of Israel, uh, the, the sorry, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen." thereof. Grief, sorrow, lament. Why, Lord, why? Surprising, isn't it? Didn't he see him go to glory? Why does he rejoice? Why, why doesn't he rejoice? Why isn't he filled with a, a gladness? His master and his friend and his spiritual father has attained the victory. And yet here he is ripping his clothes. I feel ripped in half. There is a wound that is left behind that I scarce can endure as it were. And then the question put to the Lord, where is the Lord God of Elijah? As it were, a question of bewilderment and of deep, deep concern. Well, beloved, if you study this passage, it gives some answer to why it was that Elisha was filled with this grief and this sorrow, this sense of loss that almost overwhelmed him and raised the question, where is now the Lord God of Elijah? And it does not have to do with this, whether or not this beloved father of his was in heaven and glory or not. That's important to understand the love when we ourselves have grief with respect to loss of a loved one because the world says, here's the loss of this loved one whom you were not ready yet to let go in the strength of life, perhaps very young or middle age, maybe a father or a mother with tasks to do and one is taken to glory into heaven and you say you believe in heaven and yet you're filled with this grief and this sorrow and are all both overwhelmed you know what you know what that proves it's unbelief you claim you believe in heaven but your grief shows otherwise you have serious questions about whether there is a heaven or not don't you At least we don't deceive ourselves. We know that when one dies, he or she is dead, and we're never going to see that one again. And we have this grief, and we may try to drown that grief with alcohol or what have you, but at least we're being honest with ourselves that we know there is no future, that death is the end, the bitter end, and the tender grace of a day that is dead will never come back to you. Acknowledge it, and you show that by your grief and by your doleful laments. If you really believed in heaven, it would be joy, 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 wouldn't it? And then it's not there. You really don't even believe what you claim to believe. Is that it? That's what the world says. The love of the world could not be more mistaken. And this passage, from its own point of view, demonstrates that, because Elisha had no questions about where his Master where his beloved friend and mentor was. He saw with his own eyes his friend, his mentor, this spiritual father of his vanish alive. He's not left with a corpse. He saw this friend of his vanish alive from the earthly and the physical into the heavenly and the spiritual. And his grief has nothing to do with whether or not his loved one is in heaven or not with the saints triumphant. What then is the source of his grief? I've had to deal with this as a pastor with some of my parishioners who have lost a loved one and are filled with an overwhelming grief. And finally, after who knows how many weeks of grieving they would say to me, Pastor, I must not have faith. I have this overwhelming sense of, of grief and loss, and I can't seem to to shake it. If I had more faith I should be filled with joy, shouldn't I? That my loved one is in glory and I'm only left behind? And I have responded, no, your grief is not a matter of unbelief and lack of faith in glory. Your grief is the evidence of your love. Of your love for that one who was taken from you and what that loved one meant for you. That, that friend and that fellowship has been broken and it's not going to be experienced again this side of the veil, is it? And there is the sadness of farewell. The loss of this friendship and this fellowship that meant so much to you in which that loved one even was as Christ to you in her or his own way. And the Lord does not, does not rebuke you for your grief and for your sense of loss he himself is touched with the feelings of your infirmities. Was it not at the grave of Lazarus that Jesus himself wept? And in large measure, beloved, his weeping had to do with the sense of loss that he saw with Mary and Martha, whom he he loved. And so, beloved, the sorrow and the sense of loss and the breaking of the fellowship and this approval, even divine approval, understanding of grief when that death intrudes into life and takes one from us who means so much to us in our pilgrimage here below, as it certainly was with Brother Jim Van Overloop and his wife Linda, but in many, many other instances as well. But having said that, there has to also be a certain word of caution with respect to grief at the sense of loss, either of a loved one taken from them, or perhaps being confronted that your loved one soon may depart because there is this diagnosis of a cancer that very well may prove to be terminal. And there is the, the grief, and there is almost what we call a despair. We must be warned against that, that when death comes, one may be so filled with grief that one simply says, not only can't function for a time, but... The sense of loss is such that I don't care to function anymore. I'm done with functioning in this life. I have been dealt with in a very severe way. And I'm simply going to retire from life and simply consider my own grief. And I'll simply let others tend to the body of Christ because I am simply going to be lost in my grief. And I cannot and almost I refuse to go on. Then there has to be this gentle and firm rebuke and reminder, beloved, of the history of Elisha. He was ripped in half. He ripped his clothes. He was filled with this sorrow, this sense of loss. And what did he do? He picked up the mantle, did he? Put it over his shoulder and marched deeper into the wilderness to sit under a juniper tree to sit there and say, I'm done. Let the Lord take care of his own I retire from life. I'm simply going to live in my grief, my sins, and my loneliness. Is that what Elisha did? No. He utters this cry. He rips his clothes. He takes the mantle that falls from him, and he heads back to Israel, to the Jordan, to speak with the people of God. He heads back with the cry, my Father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. That's a striking phrase. Why does he refer to Elijah as the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof? That's a military figure, of course. And what that military figure does, beloved, is to underscore the function, if you will, of Elijah to Israel at that time, and his place of importance in the life of the nation of northern Israel at that time. He was as a chariot, a military chariot, with a horse, horsemen, that or horses that were filling it, and, of course, with a king that was the token of his power, his chariots and his horses with those who rode the chariots, in the sense, in the way of battle, but not simply battle, but defense, and the way to persuade heathen nations nation not to invade them and certainly not to send down marauding bay- bands to steal away citizens of the, of the country to turn them into slaves as they were wont to do because I have my chariots with the horses and I will pursue you and I will slay you if you at- attempt to assault any of the citizens of this nation of mine. So they were set for the defense and preservation of the nation and notice what the text says the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Not one of the chariots of, of Israel and the horsemen thereof, but the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. That's Elijah, you see, when it comes to the people of God. He's not one simply numbered amongst many, numbered amongst Ahab and Jezebel's chariots. When it came to Ahab and Jezebel's chariots, they were of little purpose for the people of God. The people of God need to be preserved in their salvation, in their spiritual life, and for that there was... One man at that time appointed to this sin, and that was Elijah, the prophet. He was the chariot of Israel and the horseman thereof as he brought the word of God, you see. That's what the people of God needed, that 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, who needed to be preserved. And Elijah was the instrument that God used, and now he's gone, you see. And if he's gone, Elisha says, Lord God, who's going to replace him? He seems all but irreplaceable. And sometimes it seems that way, you know, when one is taken. When a mother of Israel was taken with seven child, with seven children, I would have early on said, she's irreplaceable. What in the world is the Lord doing to take away from a family a mother of seven children? That's just one instance. Irreplaceable. Thou hast taken Herman Huxmer from the denomination. Irreplaceable, really? One might think so. Is that true? John Calvin, what can the church do without John? The Apostle Paul, we can't survive without the Apostle Paul, could we? Irreplaceable. Were they? But that's the question that arises. Lord, who is going to replace this Elijah according to the need of thy people, Israel, who are thine own? And he takes up that mantle, you see, and he heads for the river Jordan with that mantle in his hands. And he is saying, Lord, if it be thy will, use me. I will be used in the service of the word for the sake of thy people Israel. And so the question, you see, and this bold cry, Lord God, remember thy word. Remember thy people, wilt thou be pleased to use me to keep thy people safe and to defend them as one who also will be counted as the chariot of Israel and the horseman thereof. Not because of me, but because of the word. Notice, beloved, that Elisha does not say this when he goes to... uh, and he asks the question at at the brink of the Jordan, where is Elijah, Lord? He doesn't ask, where is Elijah, Lord God? He says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? It's not Elijah in the end we need, Lord God. We need the Lord God. What will we do without thee? Elijah was the one whom thou didst use to bring thy word to bear. And if thou hast taken Elijah... Is the word gone? Are thy promises going to fail? Are you going to forget thy people, Lord? Can that be? That's the question. That's the challenge. And it's occasioned by the departure of this Elijah, whom the Lord God had been using to this point. Now, the question arises, why is the Lord God here referred to as the Lord God of Elijah, what is there about Elijah and how God used Elijah that is such a revelation of Jehovah God? And let's just briefly here consider a few incidents from the history of Elijah, beloved, to underscore how he was the revelation of Jehovah as this saving God, the God who is the the anchor of all of our hope and all of our expectations. In the first place, when you consider Elijah, you ought to consider what I'm going to call the God of election according to his sovereign purpose and his sovereign will. Understand, beloved, when you talk about the sovereignty of God with respect to his election. You're not simply talking about a doctrine that's a Calvinistic doctrine. And you may take that Calvinistic doctrine of election and predestination and like Samson go forth and slay the Arminian hip and thigh. I have the doctrine of election. I have some proof texts of the doctrine of election. And when a Arminian comes my way, I can lift it like the jawbone of an ass and slay the Arminian's hip and thigh. It's not just that kind of a doctrine below The truth of election has to do with the love of God for his own from all eternity. Ephesians 1. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice that adopting grace, the election, has to do with this Love from all eternity, which love then is going to endure, you see. And that's Elijah when you consider it, is it not? Elijah is the revelation of that love. Remember, he goes to Mount Horeb. He goes to Mount Horeb in his discouragement. And the Lord appears to him. And Elijah was ready to resign from office, if you recall. Why go on? And the Lord says, no, you're not going to resign from office, Elijah. You are still to be used. Elijah, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and I intend to preserve them as my own in my electing love. They are precious to me, the apple of my eye. And you, my good man, are going to go back and minister to them, according to my word, because I love them. And I'm going to use you with the word you bring to preserve them from spiritual bondage, you see, and enslavement, and set them Free. So Elijah, beloved, the God of Elijah, the God of this electing love, which means there are those who are precious to him from time and eternity, and he's going to be faithful in that love. You may be sure, as sure as Elijah was his prophet. But along with that love is also this power. He's the God of power. When you think of Elijah, you ought to think also of fire from heaven. Not only the fire from heaven that consumed the burnt offering, that too, on the Mount Carmel, if you recall. But there's another fire that came down from God that destroyed those who would silence him as a prophet. That's 1 Kings chapter 1. We have 1 Kings chapter 2. Just previous to that, you had two bands of 50 men under certain captains who were going to arrest Elijah And the purpose of their arresting him was to silence him so that he didn't bring God's word to God's people anymore. And if you recall from that history, the fire of God came down. If I be the prophet of the Lord, let the fire of God come and consume you. And the fire came down and consumed them. That wasn't just, you might say, something cruel. Cruel. That was God removing a threat to his prophet lest they silence him and he not be able to bring the word of God to those who needed to hear the word of God. This was a love for his people. He used his power, the power of Elijah, through Elijah to that end, you see. The God of power. And he uses his power in the interest of his love to defend his own from the enemy and to preserve them and to preserve us in times of great trial, even faced with death itself, if you if you will. So the God of Elijah, the God of this love, this enduring love, and the God of this power, but also what's striking is this God of almighty power on behalf of his people is a God of gentleness and of patience beyond words. That also was shown to Elijah and through Elijah. Again we go back to Mount Horeb. Why was Elijah at Mount Horeb to begin with? And, if you will, so so filled with what we might even call a certain kind of despair. And he was there, beloved, because in the end he's unhappy with the Lord. He sits under that juniper tree, and the Lord comes to him. What doest thou here, Elijah, under this juniper tree, ready to retire from ministering to my people? Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. The children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altar, slain thy prophets, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And then he sends them to Mount Horeb, and the Lord asks him again, Why are you here, Elijah. Because I've been very jealous, Lord, God of hosts, for thy people. Implying, but I've done my part, Lord, and yet wickedness is still there and my life is still being sought and they're still trying to silence me. What have you been doing, Lord? That's the implication. I've done my part. I've done the best I can. And somehow it's failing, Lord. Could it be you? And you might think the Lord God would say, who in the world are you, little man, to question me and my works and my power and my rights with respect to humanity? Are you going to challenge me? Away with you, I'm done with you. But the Lord God doesn't deal with Elijah and his questions and his despair almost in that severe way as he certainly could have. He patiently bears with Elijah Elijah, and comes with that still small wind and says, Elijah, I have been doing my part. I have been saving my people. I have 7,000, whether you know it or not. Now get your body back to the people of Israel and start ministering to them as I have appointed you because I intend to continue to use you. The patience of the Lord, beloved, when we may come to him in our distress and complaints and be ready, simply as it were, to despair of life and why go on. And he's touched through Christ with the feelings of our infirmities, patiently bears with us and encourages us and then gives us the strength we need to go on. And Elijah returns and continues to minister. So that love of God, of the power, love of God of Elijah, the power of this Jehovah God and the patience as he deals with us in our present distresses and our questions and all the rest. And one more point, as underscored by Elijah going early in his ministry to the house of that widow, the widow in Zarephath. Remember her with her little boy, seven years old, at the end of her resources? And she has to make a cake. Cake a loaf of bread, first for Elijah, and then for herself and her little boy. And Elijah remains with her for months and even a couple, some years. And while he's there, that little boy dies, if you recall. And Elijah himself is astonished. He has not been forewarned. And that widow says, Is this why you have come, prophet of Jehovah God? to remind me of my sins and my past idolatry and to bring judgment upon my house as I have received you into my house. And he made you praise to the Lord. And that little child is raised from the dead and he hands that little boy back to her arms. And she says, now I know the Lord God of Israel is the true God and you have not come to condemn, but you have come to save. And she goes to her cupboard again. And what's there? the cruise of oil, and the container of meal, and the Lord has provided for her and her house once again. The God of endless provision, beloved, according to our need. She goes, as it were, day by day to the cupboard of grace, and there is the grace she needs, supplied again by this God of love and power and gentleness and faithfulness, the God of his word, I have not forsaken you, I will not forsake you, I will keep you. And Elisha, when it comes to Elijah, who seems irreplaceable, I will replace him too and keep that which was dear to his heart my people. And he does, beloved. The cry goes up from Elijah Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Show thyself. Display thyself according to thy, thy word and promise. And, beloved, did he? Did he? Has he? Does he? The cry goes up, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Display thyself as such, true to thy word. Did he? Has he? does he? Read the passage, beloved. He did. Elijah is gone. The mantle's on the ground. Elijah picks up the mantle, and he takes that mantle to the water. He utters the cry. He takes the mantle, and he slaps the water, and the water divides, and the power of Elijah, that is the power of God through Elisha, now shows itself, and the Sons of the prophet says, it's as if Elijah has returned. The spirit of Elijah is upon Elisha, which means the Lord God is still with us. And he's with us too, beloved. What I hold in my hand is, as it were, the mantle of Elijah. This black book, this book between the black covers, the word of the Lord. It's as the mantle of Elijah that has been left behind, beloved. We still have it, don't we, to teach us about the the power and the faithfulness of Jehovah God which we may read to our encouragement and to keep us from despair. But the word of God is not enough just to have the word of God. You can pick up a word of God left by the giddings, you know, in a, in a hotel room and, and read it and put it back into the drawer and drive off un, unchanged. The word of God itself doesn't save. And that's why he slaps the water with that mantle. Thy spirit, O Lord. We need the spirit to apply the word. And when he slaps that water, that water divides. And there's power, you see. And the Lord God is saying, I will add my spirit to the word. You will bring the word to my people. And I'll work my spirit in their hearts. And I will encourage them and preserve them and save them to the very end as I have promised. You see, the word and the spirit and the slapping of the water shows the power of the spirit by which Jehovah God will continue to work with those whom are precious to His own heart. He did. He answered that cry. He was faithful to his word. Has he? Beloved, consider who replaced Elisha. Elisha dies too, you know. Who's going to replace Elisha? You know the meaning of the word Elisha, don't you? God who saves. Ever hear of Jesus? Of course you have. Jehovah saved. Jehovah salvation. Jehovah came in the end in the person of his son, Christ Jesus, as the word made flesh to save his people. And then this Jesus of Nazareth ascends into heaven. And we might ask, he's left us. He came on earth, he ministered, and then he left us. What good is he in heaven to us? Remember what Christ said? It's necessary that I enter into the heavenly glory, that I may Send you the Holy Spirit. I will return to you in the Holy Spirit. And so Christ Jesus, beloved, who has ascended, did so with his church in mind that he might send, as we considered this morning, his Holy Spirit to the church and by the Holy Spirit to preserve, you see, and to minister to his people by his promises. And so he has. Jehovah God has kept his word of promise concerning the great seed of the woman and the one who would give to his people the victory and preserve his own to the very end, even those who have been tested and and tried in this life. And now, I said there were three questions. Did he display himself? He did, back with Elisha. He has, through Christ Jesus, in the fullness, if you will, of his own person and work. And he still does. He did, you know, to the Vinovolo family, One of them is my son-in-law. He kept that benevolent family, mother or no mother. He ministered to them by the word and by the congregation. And Brother Jim, who's in glory, would testify of that, how the Lord kept him in all of his grief and sorrow and was good to him beyond compare. And now he may be with his wife in glory waiting for the taking of of all those who are precious in the Lord's sight. That's our Lord God, beloved. His way is in the sea. There are times we can't see this, but the word of God tells us he's still there. He still has his 7,000, and he knows how to keep us, beloved, to the very end. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, for thy promises, for thy faithfulness, for thy patience with us. Grant us the faith we need, that in the end, though we may have sorrows in this life, there is a deeper current of joy and hope that never abandons us. We pray in Jesus, who is faithful unto death and in life, and keeps us in his care by his power. For Jesus' sake, amen.